Welcome to The Boiling Frog, the podcast where we examine the intersection of economics, history, politics, psychology, and science. This is Seth. And this is Mark. For more information or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit your favorite podcast streaming service or our website at www.theboilingfrog.net. So this podcast will be one in a series we're going to do that all center around the theme of the struggle between progressivism and conservatism. And this one will put a little more emphasis on how that struggle affects local communities and local development. But before we get into that, it's really important, particularly when we're using loaded terms like progressivism and conservatism, that we be really clear we aren't talking about any particular alignment with any particular political party. In that sense, we're talking about progressivism more as a philosophy of tolerance and acceptance and welcoming of change. And it's not necessarily inherently either a liberal or a democratic party position. In fact, if you look at the history of the evolution of political parties in the United States, the one which owns the progressive impulse has switched back and forth over time. The Republican Party started out as quite a radical institution dedicated to the abolition of of slavery. But then in the later 19th century, as the U.S. industrialized, it became conservative as it was taken over by business interests. But then under people like Teddy Roosevelt, it switched back and had some very significant progressive elements in it, which lasted all the way through through the founding of the New Deal. In fact, a little-known thing is that FDR could not have gotten the New Deal approved through Congress without the support of progressive Republicans. But since the New Deal, the Republicans have been fairly conservative ever since. The point just being that who owns progressivism switches back and forth, so we're not talking about any particular party here. All right, so let's talk about the problem here and the tension, because it feels like, as humans, we all want everything to get better, but at the same time, we want nothing to change. So this sort of, intellectually, I think most of us get that change is inevitable and and mostly desirable, but instinctively, we fear change. So there's this inherent contradiction, an impossible philosophy to, to follow in practice. So, and I know this plays out at all levels of the community and of politics, and well, again, we'll talk about both local and national examples here, but let's talk about what explains this contradiction? And how can we reframe the problem to just remove it or at least minimize it? In my opinion, I think a lot of that contradiction grows out of fundamental aspects of human nature. If you think of humans as a particular type of animal, we are incredibly adept at changing the environment. In fact, as far as I know, there's never been another species in the history of the earth that's been as good at changing the earth as we are. Now, we do that not with any master plan. We do that in order to serve our individual self-interests. And consequently, at the same time, once we change something to our liking, we kind of want to freeze it that way because that's what we like, which inevitably gives us a love-hate relationship with change. You see this no more clearly than in the history of the United States since the European colonists arrived. Basically, all of the European and later immigrants from other parts of the world came to the United States because they wanted to change their personal situation in some way or ways that were denied to them at home, whether that was to make more money or to get their particular religious beliefs accepted, whatever. The point was they came here to make a change in their life. That was reinforced even after the country was founded by the ongoing westward movement across the United States, which was generally driven not by the people who had made it good in the early colonies and later states, but by the people who weren't doing so well, by the have-nots, not the haves. Which is why, of course, we end up talking about America as the land of opportunity. 
But let's remember the development of the United States was not an unmitigated success story, not only for the individual people who emigrated here, but also more importantly for the folks who had already been living here before the original immigrants arrived. We'll talk about that a little later when we talk about starting point bias and how that affects our views of change and, and our willingness to accept change. But it's really important to keep that in mind. So you've talked a lot about the natural drive for change among humans. So wouldn't it be the fact that most people then just understand that bettering themselves and society necessitates this change because continual improvement requires constant change by definition? I think that's right. I think everybody does understand that, at least at the intellectual level. The problem is that's not the only aspect of our lives. We have subconscious drives and emotional drives and whatnot that also need to be taken into account. Clearly, you're absolutely right. If we want to get someplace different from where we are, someplace that we believe to be better, we are implicitly accepting change. But change itself causes uncertainty, and the uncertainty gives rise naturally to a fear reaction. We we kind of, uh, we may want to change, but we're not exactly sure whether we're going to really like the results at the end of the day. This reminds me of an initiative that we did when I was on uh, our local school board. We were sort of attempting to write and build a new strategic plan about a new teaching paradigm for like the 21st century, because so much had changed, obviously, in the last two centuries. And yet the way we teach in public schools actually hasn't changed as much as people think. And so we took a whole bunch of people together. We got a whole, we got parents and we got education experts and teachers and all kinds of other folks in a room to really talk through every aspect of how we were running schools and really over about a year really I think came up with a ton of great ideas and really built this into a, what I thought was a really exciting plan and to my surprise it was actually pretty easy to get fairly universal acceptance of it across the spectrum and so we were really excited about this we started implementing it the following year and almost immediately started getting pushback from the same people who had agreed how wonderful it was uh, that included teachers on how they would have to act differently, but even parents who would say, whoa, 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 I, I get this idea in theory, but now you're starting to experiment on my kids, and I, and I don't like that idea too much. <laughs> That's a very common problem in, in any kind of political change. We certainly saw that on the city council many, many times. You know, it made me think as you were talking there, everybody knows what nimbyism is, not in my backyard. You're actually describing kind of a form of temporal nimbyism where, yeah, sure, change things, but uh, not today. That's just part of life as well. So this just all goes to the fact that as humans, it's really hard to assess the future very well. But I've also feels like I've noticed this phenomenon where we don't grasp the past very well either. I always you see this sort of uh, what I think is an illusion of nostalgia, these sort of rose colored glasses that some people wear that define a world that I don't think ever really was. Yeah, you know, I agree. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Probably first and foremost is the fact that whenever we look at the past, we are looking at the past from a particular perspective. We are choosing a starting point, basically, to look at the past, which generally is today for us or our memory of something or, or whatnot. Winston Churchill famously wrote in his introduction to his six-volume history of World War II that you guys who are reading this book, uh, you know how the war turned out, and uh, you're reading it in that context, and you're going to view that most of the things I'm describing here were simply inevitable. I can assure you, as one of the people at the top of the pyramid making the decisions, that was not the case. We did not know we were going to win the war until fairly late in the process. 
And it just illustrates how how you choose your starting point gives you a very different view of history, even though the facts are the same. I mean, think about it this way. Your perspective of history looks really different if you start looking at it from 1492 or 1619 or 1776 or 1964. And it also depends on which side you take when you pick a starting point. 1492 is a really good example of that, because from the point of view of Europeans, it was the starting of a tremendous success story in their migration into the Western Hemisphere. But for the people who already lived here, it was a horrible starting point. Many people argue that it was a de facto genocide that took place. Same facts, same sequence of facts, different starting point, different side taken, very different perspective on grasping the past. We also also tend to ignore the bad things that have happened in the past when we reflect back on it. There's probably a good personal psychological reason for that. If we all focused on the mistakes we made and the bad things that we've done, we'd be drowned in depression all the time. And on top of that, we have to remember that old saw about history generally is written by the winners, not the losers. And the winners naturally like to focus on how successful they were, not necessarily on the mistakes they made along the way. And finally, the way memory seems to work, we all tend to look at the past in terms of the standout events, the extreme things that we lived through. I mean, for example, I don't know about you, I don't really remember the day-to-day details of my life even 10 years ago, but I do remember the important things and the big things, whether they were good or bad. Right. So, you know, a lot of Americans have this, what I think is a sort of weird nostalgia for, you know, the good old days, but those assessments are are pretty flawed, no? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. They are. Right now, in uh, at least my age bracket, people born in the 1950s, there's sort of a growing sense of looking back at the 1950s as the this you know, wonderful era in American history. And I don't mean to say that there weren't good things about it, but talk about starting point bias. It's really easy to look at the 1950s as a kind of really nice, good time if you were a white middle-class male. If you were black or a person of color, not so much. There was rampant racism and some pretty violent racism at the time. On a gender level, the life of women generally was pretty constrained. They weren't allowed to, by social norms and sometimes by law, to do many things that they accept as their right to do today and which, frankly, have enriched society. Well, I'm a big fan of Billy Joel and uh, in his song, Keeping the Faith, there's a great line. It says, because the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. <laughs> you know, I like Billy Joel's work a lot. I have to admit I'm not familiar with that line, but it's a really good one. And it highlights something that we talked about in our first podcast on market capitalism that bears on this discussion as well. Humans don't assess risk very well. We generally tend to overestimate the risks of the unknown when we're assessing things. And particularly, we overestimate the the impact of really big potential unknowns. Bottom line, if we're successful, meaning we've adapted the world somehow to meet most of our needs and desires, we tend to see change as risky simply because it threatens that status quo, even if there might be a better status quo that we could get to. So I guess you could say that just like we have rose-colored glasses looking at the past, we have these sort of dark-tinted, forward-looking glasses. And those are both fallacies because we tend to compare the current environment to an imagined future environment instead of comparing alternative future environments, which would be the right way to look at it, even though it's difficult, right? And I know we saw this a lot in local politics. 
Yeah, very much so. In fact, I played a pretty big role in a local measure to try and get the community to raise taxes to buy a 25-acre plot of land in order to turn it into a public park. It was privately owned, and the owner was going to sell it to somebody, whether it was the city or somebody else. That measure failed in large part, I believe, because many citizens in San Carlos simply couldn't accept the fact or couldn't believe that the property would ever be developed because it never had been developed. For all the time that they had lived here, you know, 30, 40 years, it had basically been undeveloped and mostly vacant land. And so they made the assumption, oh, the future is going to look like the past and it's always going to look like that. And therefore, why should I raise my taxes to keep it looking like that? They were wrong, of course, because as soon as the measure failed and the city was unable to buy the property, the owner turned around and did what he said he was going to do, which was to sell it to, wait for it, a developer who is now in the process of building a hundred odd homes on it, which has caused the community to come up in arms going, well, this, the city needs to stop that. And you're like, well, first of all, it's private property. And second of all, we tried to stop it by having you buy the land and you turned it down. So... Right. And that was the result of the same fallacy of comparing the present to the future. Right. Right. Instead right. of comparing these two alternate futures. And that was clearly hard to convince people of that. So let's let's use that to transition now to talk about the local level and talk about that. We live in this town of San Carlos which is halfway between San Francisco and San Jose. As we've alluded to, we've both served on the school board here. Mark, you also served on a city council for a decade, and I know you were the mayor a couple of times as well. We love living here. It's a great location. It's sort of middle class, upper middle class community. It's a pretty desirable place to live because of the work location. Very mild weather, good schools that hopefully we had some part in, <laughs> great restaurants uh, that are here. So just give me your perspective of how this did play out in San Carlos, this tension. Yeah, uh, there were a number of things that I think anybody, whether they live in San Carlos or not, will be able to relate to some good examples. One other point that I would add to your list of the, the attributes of San Carlos is the community itself is undergoing a lot of change. Communities often go through life cycles where people move to a place and they live there until they retire retire or pass away or what have you. And San Carlos has definitely been going through that in the last 20 years. I once looked at the data and something on, I forget what the exact percentage was, but a very large share of the population actually has moved to San Carlos within the last 10 years. All of those people came here for what you described San Carlos as being, but at the same time, they all have different desires about what they want the community to look like going forward. That creates the opportunity for almost the, the need for change. But change itself creates both new opportunities and new problems. And in San Carlos, for example, a classic one of that is parking. Parking in our downtown area, uh, where all the shops and restaurants, most of the shops and restaurants are located. A city council member a couple of decades ago famously said that you could roll a bowling ball down the parking area of the main drag in San Carlos and be sure that you were not going to hit a car almost any time of the day or night because it was Densville. People just didn't go there very often. The city council back then took a number of steps to improve the downtown, which had a positive effect and lots of people started going there. And guess what? As a result, all of a sudden we have a parking crisis. We don't have enough parking spaces. More recently, the pandemic has suppressed people 
wanting to go out. And in order to help the restaurants survive, we closed off a number of the parking areas so that they could have on-street dining so they weren't in enclosed spaces. And interestingly, that has in turn opened the door for people to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, I actually like having a pedestrian mall down here. Maybe we should make that permanent. It's an example of how change feeds on itself and it creates both new opportunities and new problems in an ongoing way. It doesn't just stop at some point. The the parking issue uh, reminds me of a quote from the famous philosopher Yogi Berra, (laughs) who once said, uh, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. That feels like that's the story of our town a (laughs) little bit. But clearly there are problems to be addressed, but just because we have those problems are not a reason to not allow the growth, because there's plenty of counterexamples to this. So there's even towns 15, 20 minutes away from us who have not experienced that level of growth or development in their downtown and because they're not terrible and they're not terribly desirable to go to, but guess what? Parking's pretty easy. No, that's absolutely right. You know, those features you talked about at the area and about San Carlos that make it so desirable, there are a few other things you'd add to that as well, which is the the higher level educational institutions like Stanford, the venture capital complex on Sand Hill Road, uh, Silicon Valley, what we talk about as Biotech Gulch up where Genentech is, which created sort of the seed beds for economic growth. And as that economic growth burgeoned, it made the area even more desirable because people wanted to come here to work and make money and get rich. That drove up home prices, which was a good thing for homeowners because it made them wealthier, at least on paper. But at the same time, it also made it much more difficult for their own children to get started, at least in the area, when they wanted to move out of home and and spread their wings. Because not every young adult can be the next director at Google. And even if you're going to be, it takes time to get there. And meanwhile, you got to find a place to live, which has created the housing crisis. But in turn, it's also encouraged more young adults to stay living at home, which has made traffic worse because where the average home years ago in San Carlos used to have at most two adults driving cars in it. And occasionally for a few years, it might have a few more as the kids were going through college before they moved out. Well, now they're not moving out and they're living at home for extended periods of time into their late 20s and 30s because housing costs are so high. That makes traffic worse and makes parking worse. So all these changes, as I said, they create both new opportunities and new challenges and it never stops. It just constantly keeps going. That's right. And it's funny when, you know, on paper, I guess, I love it when I see the value of my home going up. But when I step back and think about it intellectually, I'm like, wait a second, that actually doesn't benefit me that much unless I move somewhere and I move somewhere out of the area. If anything, on some level, I want housing prices to be more reasonable because I worry about my own children, right? And where they can live and whether they can live in a community like this. So it feels like we should be supporting this growth to have more housing and whatnot. But you have a lot of communities that decide, well, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to block growth, right? And and we definitely have a few communities in this area that do that. And and don't they also effectively become like a free rider on other communities that, that do allow that growth? <laughs> I, I think we better take a second here and, and expl- have you explain for our listeners what you mean by free rider. Well, it's, it's related to what we talked about in our podcast on capitalism, because free rider is essentially a, like a positive externality. It's another type of market failure where someone or some group or some entity benefits from either a public good or other resources that are provided by someone else, but they in turn don't pay for them or they at least underpay for them. So in this particular example, it could be like a town that doesn't allow any growth, but it's next to the town that does. So it's next to the town that has the supermarket and the other 
other businesses, but it leaves the traffic all for that other yeah. community. Yeah, that, you know, that's absolutely right. And, and in fact, I remember uh, we have some communities uh, adjacent to San Carlos or near San Carlos that in fact do that. They, they allow no commercial development of any kind. There are no grocery stores, no auto repair shops, no gas stations, no nothing. And uh, since they don't allow the people to grow their own food and, and uh, drill for their own oil and refine it, they basically require their residents to go use the services provided by those other communities. And as you mentioned, among other things, inflict the traffic, you know, increased traffic issues on those communities. Uh, just as a little side note, I have to tell you that when I was on the council and I first learned about this free rider problem, I had the what I thought was a clever idea that a bunch of the local communities that do allow those kind of commercial activities ought to get together and basically say, well, if you're when you check out at the grocery store in San Carlos, you show your driver's license and uh, and if you don't live in one of these uh, you know communities that are banded together, we charge you an extra hundred bucks to deal with the, the problems you've caused. So you wanted to build a wall, yeah, in other words, in a way, or or at least <laughs> at least get people who you know get communities that were weren't willing to accept the costs of development to pay some of the price of development. Right, right, of course. Unfortunately, I found out that that was right. unconstitutional, so I was unable to implement it. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, it's, it's a small problem. Let me shift a little bit to another local issues that I know we we both dealt with and get your perspective. It, it feels like there's a challenge when we have the public at different starting points on when they engage with an issue. For example, we would... I know on the, on the, in the school board situation, discuss a really meaty issue, maybe it was something about the math curriculum or, or something that I think was pretty important. And we'd discuss it for six months or nine months. And we'd have meetings, of course, open to the public, of course. And we would announce these meetings and, you know, three people from the public would show up and to each of these meetings. And then it would be the night before the actual decision is going to be made or proposal is going to be voted upon. And something would be written in the newspaper that says, oh, the school board of San Carlos is going to vote on this. And then 100 people would actually show up to that final meeting where we're actually going to vote, even though 95% of the discussion had already been had, and they'd show up and then 20 people would get up and make a public comment yelling at us that, why is this the first they've heard of it? And you're doing this too quickly, <laughs> even though it was the end of a nine-month process, right? And that helped sow a bit of a distrust in government, because even though it was completely in the open, it felt like it was we were doing something behind people's backs. That was a real challenge. And then particularly in a community like this, relatively wealthy compared to a lot of places, we don't have like real serious issues like big cities or anything like this. And, you know, the moniker of San Carlos is, you know, the city of good living, which some people make fun of, but we, we kind of <laughs> think is fun and appropriate. But sometimes, you know, I've always called it like the city of made up problem because nature abhors a vacuum. So it's amazing that people get so passionate about what I would consider generally fairly minor things. I know, obviously, you know more about this than I did, but this, the city took something like eight years to decide for a particular park whether or not to put down natural grass or artificial turf. And regardless of one's viewpoint on that, it shouldn't be an eight-year process. It was just so much passion about relatively uh, minor things. So kind of like, why is that? And, and why does it happen? Yeah, yeah. I've been there, done that. I used to jokingly tell people that one of the biggest challenges of being an elected official was getting people to pay attention because California requires and, and you and I and every elected official I know fully supports the idea of open and transparent government. I don't know of a single candidate for local office who has not run with that as part of their platform. 
Okay, that's how that's how fundamental it is. But it's very hard to get people to pay attention to public issues, and it results in what you're talking about of people suddenly hearing about it and reacting generally negative to it. And it occurs to me that too is another form of starting point bias. They are assuming that they just heard about it yesterday, and that means it wasn't ever discussed before that. And as you talked about, that's not the case. It's been talked about for a long time. It just wasn't talked about by them. Compounded by the fact that because it's a change being proposed, their instinctive reaction is, well, change must be bad. Something is going to go wrong, and I don't want that to happen. Even though if they stop to think about it, they're like, well, unless I have elected a bunch of really unreasonable, nasty people, that's what they've talked about. And they've talked about how to mitigate the negative effects and how to balance the positive against the negative and fundamentally to not make changes that aren't going to improve things. Because after all, one of the things elected officials like to do generally is get reelected. And it's really hard to do that if you do things that piss people off. But yeah, so there's a bunch of factors like that that play into how people and why people react that way. Okay, so then talk specifically, though, about that notion of people getting really entrenched on these sort of objectively minor issues. It doesn't seem to make much sense to get all worked up of something that we know and they know doesn't really affect them that much. So why does that happen? Yeah, my my daughter once taught me a phrase that applies to this situation when I was in the midst of a council meeting and she happened to be listening to it and people were arguing about uh, exactly along the lines of what you're talking about. And she texted me and said, Man, that is a totally first world problem. And you're like, yeah. (laughs) So I think part of the reason people get that tied up in stuff is they fear change, as we talked about. And once they embrace a position to, say, oppose change or oppose something, even when they're given information saying, hey, we already talked about the details for that. Here's how we're going to address the negatives. And you're forgetting all these positives, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, none of us like to admit that we were wrong. So our initial assessment opposing something, we might even agree objectively a little later, well, that was wrong, but we don't like to admit that. So we stick with that and we keep pushing it because we want to confirm that our initial belief was correct and not have to admit that we're wrong. And that's a phenomenon that we talked about in our first podcast is it's cognitive dissonance or rather people wanting to avoid cognitive dissonance because it's uncomfortable. Unfortunately, mass media and particularly social media with everybody being connected to everybody else and everybody's opinions being, you know, given equal weight in public forum, whether they actually know what they're talking about or not, it really reinforces that phenomenon and I think makes it really hard, particularly on national issues, for people to say, okay, I've learned some stuff. Uh, Maybe I'm going to change my position. So, so it sounds like really this phenomenon happens because of the intersection of these sort of psychological issues all at the same time. We talked about that everyone has a starting point bias in the way they look at history and, and change and their fear of change. Their starting point bias of when they start engaging with the issue and then sort of the attempt to avoid cognitive dissonance sort of all come together right, to make this happen. Clearly, it is worse on a national level than in a little town like ours. So let's, let's segue to that. Let's, let's talk about the United States and how these issues play out or how this tension plays out. Let's start with immigration. I always found this one fascinating because we're a nation of immigrants, but we always seem very uneasy about immigration at the same time. So how do we have that contradiction? (laughs) That's a really, really good one. I mean, if you think about it, and it's often commonly perceived this way, the United States was built by immigrants. 
there were people who lived here before and who were not treated well by the expansion, but the nation itself as it exists today was built by immigrants. And consequently, we have a rich history of immigrants who came here seeking wealth, political, but religious freedom as well. And yeah, being taken advantage of by people who had been here for a while. But the net effect was that the country grew and evolved and got richer and wealthier and in general, I think, has, has gotten better. But as you've pointed out, once people get established after they've immigrated here, many of them want to turn around and shut the door out of, uh, I guess, a fear that the performance that they themselves did won't get repeated by the people who came in afterwards. That's been applied to all sorts of ethnic groups emigrating to the United States, the Germans, the Irish. I mean, it used to be signs throughout the Northeast, no Irish need apply. Not sure how they were supposed to earn their daily bread, but, um, you know, they were denied jobs everywhere. Uh, Italians, Jews, Asians, Hispanics, Muslims. In California, the west portion of the Transcontinental Railroad was built primarily by Chinese immigrants who the California residents of the time needed and wanted and encouraged to come here and then did everything they could to make them want to leave afterwards because they feared, even though they had created the railroad, they feared what they might do afterwards. Right. So a lot of us who are here now, we look at the issue so narrowly, right, is to say, well, I'm here because my ancestors work hard, so we deserve to be here. And I think we tend to discount you know, these sort of social or community assets or these public goods that we've talked about in the past that we really leveraged or our ancestors leveraged on the way to get where we are. And it feels like fundamentally it comes down to the belief whether economics is a zero-sum game or not. And we know from data that it's not, right? And we know from experience that it's not. And we know that on net, we're not actually not harmed by immigration. In fact, we benefit from immigration. But we sort of default to this viewpoint of like a fixed economic pie. And when we do that, we fear that despite the fact that our, you know, our ancestors, <laughs> who were also immigrants got a piece of the pie and expanded the pie that somehow that's not going to happen again. So, you know, it is how take changing, you know, the perspective of history. Also, sometimes I've heard people say, well, that may have been true in the past, but in the present, it's very different because the country is really crowded now. So it's a whole different thing to support new people. And I find that argument a bit hollow because, you know, I, I looked it up before this podcast. I mean, the U.S. ranks 174th in the world, right, in terms of population density. So I think we could still absorb a few more people. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I saw something similar a lot on the council. People would, when they didn't want to see a change happen, they would always grab some issue, whatever the issue du jour was, and use that as a reason to say, well, we can't allow that change. In many cases, it was like, well, we don't want you know that to change our way of life, the things that we like about San Carlos, the thing we like about this area. I never said this publicly, but I always had in the back of my mind, it's like, really, you want me to apply that logic a little more thoroughly and basically move everybody out of here and give the land back to the Ohlone Indians who used to live here? Because you know, they, were, they were here first and- Depends on your starting <laughs> point. That's, that's right. right. It depends on your starting point. Yeah. And, and that's, as we've talked about many times today, starting point bias and fear of change are, are really powerful factors in influencing how people react and, and try and build futures and generally tend to overestimate the downsides of what might happen and underestimate the, the advantages of what could come out of change, even though they have their own personal experience based on their own personal situation that their ancestors had implemented changes that led to them being as well off as they are today. Well, of course, I know you're familiar with the saying of that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And although we're both numbers guys, we know that you could make a graph look very different depending on where your starting point is. There was a 
conversation I had a few years ago with a parent of a friend of my son's who was a very successful man. He was a very smart man. He was financially successful. He was a venture capitalist in the area. He had an older son who was at an Ivy League institution and obviously was going to probably have a pretty nice life and had lots of opportunities. But in this conversation I was having with the dad, he was complaining to me that his son lost out on a particular internship for some company he was looking at for the summer, and he lost the job to a underprivileged minority student who had been given preference, presumably, in this process. And he was really angry about this and thought it was unfair. And albeit I was polite to him, I was really bothered by this conversation and the fact that, again, his starting point was, well, they're both now at this Ivy League institution and everything should be a contest of base what it is now. And of course, he thought his son was smarter and better. He may have been, he may not have been, I don't know. But he really was neglecting sort of the larger picture of the starting point and his son's journey and the opportunities his son has had and will have in life versus this other kid, right? And that relates to all kinds of other issues that we'll probably get into future podcasts related to the role of whether it's affirmative action or, or reparations. But you're really a notion of fairness really is about that same starting point of history. Yeah. And, you know, as I was listening to that story, it reminded me of another aspect of starting point bias that we haven't touched on that's important. It's not as if starting point biases get chosen at random. We have to remember that there's a person making the choice. We ourselves are choosing how we pick a starting point. And guess what? We tend to generally pick starting points that make us look good and help reinforce the notion of, well, it was inevitable that this was going to happen this way. Okay, so I, I think we've done a pretty good job outlining this sort of tension, which is between the desire to make our individual lives better, which plays out as progressivism on the community level, the desire to avoid change, which might harm our position, or the need to hedge our position at least, so that plays out as conservatism on the community level. Clearly, both you and I have been advocating for the camp that progressivism is both desirable and inevitable. And I know we're going to discuss this tension in other contexts in future podcasts, but let's see if we could just kind of sum up the lessons here. Sure, I'll give it a shot. First off, I think it's important that we remember change is how we shape the future. We do it both individually and collectively in order to make the world more to our liking than it is today. That doesn't mean we're going to end up with a future without problems. It'd be really unrealistic to expect that we could build a future without problems because we've never been able to build the present without problems. And for that matter, if you look at the past, it's always had its share of problems too. Instead, our focus needs to be on figuring out how to build a future where we mitigate the problems that occur. Of course, we have to be honest with ourselves and remember that it's always going to be a temptation to reject change outright in order to try and avoid future problems by basically just sticking with the present. But we also need to remember that sticking with the present is itself a choice. Inaction is actually an action and not always necessarily the best one. And however attractive inaction may feel under some circumstances, we need to remember that the only thing it's going to do is simply perpetuate today's problems into the future without resolving them, let alone without giving us new opportunities and new benefits. Plotting a course to the future requires a careful assessment of risks and alternatives. And as we've talked about several times in the podcast today, it's really important not to overestimate future risks simply because they're new and we're unfamiliar with them. It may be tempting to stick with the problems of today, the devil we know, in order to avoid creating new problems, but that ain't going to ever solve anything. 
Building the future sounds like a huge Herculean task, and in one sense it is, but we're not doing it alone. We are all part of a community, in fact, many communities, and by working together, we can do things that no one individual could ever do by themselves. We talked about that when we talked about market capitalism in our first podcast. At the heart of market capitalism, what makes it work is, in fact, its ability to harness individual self-centered actions in order to achieve a better collective community outcome. If you want to see a great example of how individual actions collectively can have an enormous impact, you need look no further than the world that we currently live in, where, as a result of the simple act of wiring the world, we have unleashed a collective level of creativity and inventiveness that we haven't seen in a really, really long time. Well, Mark, what you're effectively describing is a situation related to what we talked about in our capitalism podcast is we've reduced friction on the way people can work together, the information and labor effectively that works together to create collective good. And that is an argument why immigration actually has worked in this and other countries. And I guess on one level, I've thought of it often just as a moral obligation of just not shutting the door behind you, because even if it weren't in our economic interest to let more people in, either whether it's our local community or our country, it would be sort of this bizarre thing and very hypocritical to assume it was okay for us, but not for the next person. And I think in of itself, that'd be a good enough argument. But here's the good news. It's, it actually is in our self-centered economic interest because of that decrease in friction, that increase in economic value to everyone and, and our own ancestor success in growing that pie proves that point. Yeah, I agree. Immigration is just one of many national examples that proves when we embrace change, when we embrace progressivism, when we figure out how to build a better future for ourselves as individuals, it makes us all better off. So I think we're certainly in agreement with that, and that's a good place, I think, to wrap this episode up. Thank you, Mark, for another fun podcast, and thanks to our listeners. And if you all want to provide feedback or learn more about our podcast or read additional materials related to the subjects, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net. Saying goodbye, this is Seth. And Mark. Wishing you good progress in your journey through life. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.